1: Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Barara. If you've been following the news you've likely heard about the debt ceiling. It's the total amount of money that the U.S. government is authorized to borrow to meet its existing legal obligations. This month, the U.S. reached that limit, and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned that the government will have to carry out extraordinary measures to continue paying the nation's bills beyond January. Unless, that is, Congress acts to raise the debt limit. To discuss the debt ceiling and the broader economy, I'm joined by Justin Wolfers, He's a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. Professor, thanks for joining the show.
1: a pleasure to be here.
0: So I'm gonna begin very basically with respect to the debt ceiling. Why do we have debt and to whom do we owe that debt?
1: Good question. So we have debt because the US government has at various points, both in the present and through our history, decided to spend more money than it takes in. So in a given year, The difference between the money that comes into the treasury and the money that goes out is called our budget balance, or because usually there's more money going out than going in, we call it the budget deficit. Think about that as the flow. Now, the debt is the accumulation of that. So uh, if you think about it as a bathtub, each year there's more water flowing into the tub. The level of the tub, therefore, reflects not just this year's flow, but the flow over the last couple of hundred years.
0: So it's a pretty disgusting bathtub.
1: It's a pretty deep <laughs> bathtub. Deep. But actually, disgusting. no, I, I want to, nope. there is an immense confusion because we use a lot of guilt words when we surround things like debt.
0: Yeah. I think that's crazy. Can you answer in connection with this framing? You said we, we spend more than we take in. Yep. Some people ask the question when they balance their own budgets in their households. Well, how can that be? Is that responsible or not? But they don't. I have a mortgage. Yeah. And the thing is, so
1: therefore I have a debt. You might think that sounds really irresponsible, but guess what? I also have a whole bunch of bricks that are worth a lot of money. So I went into debt, but it bought me something really valuable. So that I think is good debt. Let me give you another example. Many of your listeners probably have student debt. They probably resent the hell out of it. Well, That's they're a trying different to get conversation. It, they're trying to get it forgiven <laughs> right. as we speak. And, you know, in a lot of, I grew up in Australia with very little student debt because the government paid for most of my education. But uh, when I, my students complain about their debt, I point out the fact to them they got something incredibly valuable in return. Now, it's not as physical as a house, but they got an education. And a typical college graduate over the course of a lifetime will earn more than a million dollars more than someone without a college
0: degree. Okay. You made a good case. So is the US debt of the quality of student debt, like you've described, or uh, home debt. That, in some sense, is the question,
1: right? Is this that I went into debt to go to Vegas to
0: blow it all? <laughs> to totally on... worth it. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> a terrible example. <laughs> because no, it's a I'm goody... on board with that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, uh, most people in Washington would not be. Um, you know, did you go go to Vegas and, and blow it all on... Um, I'm not even going to finish the sentence. Yeah. Or did you invest in our future? So let me give you a really good example of going into debt. We went into bucket loads of debt during World War II. As a result, we, our children and our grandchildren, will have a degree of freedom that we would not have had if we hadn't spent billions of dollars on tanks and the like. That was clearly good debt.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I am sure you can walk into a local government agency that looks kind of inefficient, or you can point to your favorite program that you hate the most and say, this looks like going to Vegas. Um, A big part of the recent run-up in debt is, of course, the government's massive response to the coronavirus pandemic. That feels a little bit more to me like fighting World War II than it does like going to Vegas. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it's a mix of all of the above. The other reason we might worry about debt. So one is, are we borrowing to buy useful stuff? Another is, will we be able to repay it? Because you don't want to get in over your head. And that does go for governments as it goes for people. There are complexities to be sure.
0: So if you made a pie chart of our of our debt, what is it mostly? Who are the creditors? Uh,
1: actually, other Americans. So most of the US debt is held by
0: Americans. That's how we finance things.
1: Right. If we want to make it sound terrible, we'll say, isn't it terrible we owe so much money to the Chinese? Um, Because they're also one of our big creditors, not as big as the American people. To which my answer is, I don't know why. I don't care who lent me the money. Let's go back to thinking about my mortgage. I thought my mortgage was good value because I got a good house out of it. I don't care whether the money for it came from China
0: or the United States. So what's the current amount of debt?
1: Uh, I believe the technical term is a shit ton. (laughs) So... If you ever want to look it up, there's a weird thing where it's actually kind of hard to find the right number. It's called federal debt held by the public. And so that's about 24 trillion. Some people will tell you higher numbers, but that's because they're including when one part of the government lends to another part of the government, which doesn't make any sense. But that's what a lot of the headline numbers are.
0: So you say 24 trillion. You said earlier that debt is okay if it's good debt and if you don't get in over your head. How do you measure... Whether the U.S. is getting in over its head or not.
1: Right. So more art than science. One way of thinking about this is just thinking about how much we owe relative to our ability to produce. So 24 trillion would be an enormous debt for Australia, which is small, but a much smaller debt for the United States. It's about 95 percent of our gross domestic product, which is to say, 95 percent of one year's total income of all Americans.
0: Is that the best comparison? Should you keep your debt to within some percentage of GDP? No, Beyond I don't which you should not go? No, okay. Right.
1: So that's just one measure. So by the way, Japan is up around 200%. So it's at a level high enough that it's higher than it's been in our past. I mean, it peaked a little bit higher during COVID, but basically it's at an historic high for the United States. And it's at a relatively high level relative to most other industrialized countries, but we have other advanced nations like Japan who've gotten out ahead of us and survived. We've also seen countries get into terrible problems when their debts got too high, um, but not really clear examples of big industrialized countries like us. So it's enough that many people are worried, but if you don't want to be worried, you can find counter examples. Let me just add one more thing. You asked a question, Preet, which was, what are other ways of thinking about it? Another way of thinking about whether you're in over your head is to think about, can I afford the interest payments? So what's debt servicing as a share of your income? Right, that's sort of like with your mortgage, you think about what are my mortgage payments relative to my income.
0: What's the cash flow issue?
1: Yeah. And the thing to realize is as much as our debt is high, interest rates are really low. And so this alternative approach says actually when rates are this low, it's pretty easy to afford the monthly payments. They also say something else. You want to borrow money whenever you have a project that yields a rate of return that is a payoff larger than the extra interest you'll pay. Well, the lower the interest rate, the lower is the rate of return that you need for an investment to be profitable. And so the entire 2000s has been a period of very low interest rates, and it still is despite what the Fed's doing. And that suggests there are probably more opportunities for smart investments that yield a positive payoff
0: right now. So I asked you about debt. Now I want to ask you about the ceiling. Why is it the case that we have a legal ceiling on debt? We
1: have a legal ceiling on how much debt the U.S. government can go into because Congress passed that law.
0: <laughs> What's the rationale? What are the pros and cons of having a ceiling at all? Is it to make sure we don't get in over our head?
1: No. So I think the common sense around the kitchen table view of this actually ends up to be being quite mistaken. Because the thing is, what does Congress do? Congress passes bills. One set of bills is it says, this is how much money we should spend another set of bills is this is how much you know this is how high taxes are going to be so therefore how much revenue we're going to get once it's passed those two bills it's therefore decided how much extra debt we're going to take on it's been decided it then passed a third set of bills called the debt ceiling saying but you can't go into debt above this level well it turns out you can't have all three of those bills being met at the same time so It's weird. Congress said to the federal government, go into all this debt. And then it said, but we're not going to let you go into debt. That's Congress telling the treasury two directly contradictory things.
0: So is the debt limit irrational? It's insane. The debt limit is insane. The debt ceiling is insane. Yeah. Is Is that a majority view or not? Among economists,
1: we understand that you can't tell someone simultaneously to jump and not jump. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. even economists know that and that that is an economic theorem as a political matter how did it come about if smart people like yourself and those in your profession think it's insanity so it
1: historically was just something where i i actually don't know the full history of it but what i do know is that when we'd hit the debt limit congress would understand oh wow we said spend all this money therefore we need to borrow money so therefore we'll pass the limit and so the debt limit has been raised dozens of times throughout U.S. history. And then about 10 or 15 years ago, Congress all of a sudden realized that it could hold up the business of government and the minority party could, uh, sorry, the party out of the White House had immense leverage because it could basically say, we're not going to raise the debt ceiling unless you want us, unless you do what we want.
0: Right. So it becomes a weapon to get rid of certain things. Or political weapon. Or to enact certain weapon. policies. Right. And in your mind as an economist, it's nothing beyond a political weapon.
1: Well, it's a political weapon with immense economic consequences because the point the point of this weapon is you can point it at someone and you can say, hey, we're not going to pass this. Therefore, when the next credit card statement comes, you're not going to be able to send a check back, which is to say they could force the US government to default. And if you're the most insane person in the room, you might make that threat realizing that the sane people in the room would say, "Oh, that's a bad idea what have i got to get you to do to drop the weapon
0: right so it's a, it's a repeating game of brinksmanship and chicken for political purposes
1: yes and the reason economists think it's crazy is should you pass a law that makes it easy for congress with all its political whims to suddenly decide to default on the us debt
0: and the answer is no because the consequences of a default for average americans is what
1: the most obvious and most direct one will be: it is actually where, if you decide not to pay your credit card bill, what's going to happen? You're going to find it hard to get credit in the future. Interest rates are going to go up.
0: Or if I don't pay my, if I don't pay my the loan on my home, I'll be kicked out of my home.
1: So we're not going to get kicked out of our home, but what is going to happen is that people only borrow, or sorry, will only lend money to us if we are willing to pay a higher interest rate to offset the risk they don't get paid. Now remember, the national debt is $24 trillion. If we raise the interest rate by even half a percentage point, that's a ton of money. That money doesn't come from some abstract entity called the US government, because that abstract entity is paid by yours and my taxes. So if we default, for sure and for certain, someone's paying higher taxes. It's probably not you and I, it's probably more our children, but to some extent it's us as well. That's the first immediate direct effect. And that's before we then say, you know what, the global financial system is kind of built around this idea that the US government always pays its debts. So
0: if if it is catastrophic and as a bipartisan matter, people on both sides of the aisle would view a default as catastrophe, sort of like mutually assured destruction in the nuclear context, is that pretty good assurance that at the end of the day, there will always be a deal and there will not be a default or not?
1: So, one view of history is, Congress, both sides threaten, 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 and then we get towards midnight on the night that it has to happen, and round about 11 o'clock, the grown-ups walk into the room and they say, this has to get worked out, and they work it out. And this is a view that eventually, when the stakes are high enough, Congress figures it out. And historically, that view has been correct. Now, by the same token, historically, it's also been true that the party with the majority in the House has been able to figure out who they should elect as speaker in the first round. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, That that
0: didn't happen this time. This
1: Congress had a speaker running against nobody, and he couldn't get elected. There was no serious Republican candidate against McCarthy, and they couldn't get
0: it done. So you're saying the, the current dystopian political climate makes a default a little bit more likely?
1: Somewhere between a little and a lot. Because if you think about the embarrassment that the Republican Party just put its leader through, that wasn't mutually assured destruction. It was mutually assured destruction between the various wings of the Republican Party. They all look bad. And so Republicans weren't able to prevent Republicans from hurting Republicans. What we're hoping for this time with the debt limit is that Republicans will be able to prevent Republicans from hurting Americans. You know, I kind of think Republicans care more about Republicans than they do about Americans. So that's got me really worried.
0: Does a catastrophe commence the moment of the default? In other words, if the default is allowed to happen on Monday and then the grown-ups get together on Wednesday and try to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, is that doable or are the consequences in some ways permanent even two days after a default? So I want to come.
1: Can I do what an academic will do? I'm sorry, Preet, which is.
0: Are you going to give me a test?
1: I want to uh, I am. That's right, <laughs> and it's gonna—you have to fill it out in a Scantron bubble form. Um, I'm gonna use ChatGPT. Oh ah. man, you're gonna get at least a B plus um, <laughs> and a Wharton MBA. Um, the word catastrophe—I just wanted to get hung up on a little bit. So the thing we know for sure and for certain is interest rates rise because of this nonsense, and someone pays that, and that's you and I. What's a little more uncertain? is this may reveal fragilities in the financial system or it may be a shock to consumer confidence or it may lead businesses to stop believing Washington can get things done or it may lead foreign investors to freak out. And those things are what could cause a catastrophe. So I'm going to say it's going to cause pain and could cause a catastrophe. And then you should remind me what your question was. Oh, does that happen the the moment we hit midnight?
0: Yeah, like with some things... You allow the bad thing to happen. And then you can remediate if you turn around and do the right thing within two days or three days or four days. And some things like the stoppage of your heart, it's permanent damage and death and fatality if you don't rectify it within just a few minutes. How how does this compare to that?
1: So this is good. So I want to structure my answer around what I just said. There will definitely be pain from higher interest rates and there's the potential for a catastrophe. And how those two different things – and those play out quite differently. So – Pain from higher interest rates, let me actually tell you, the pain from that's already started because investors around the world who've always thought that the U.S. would never default on its debt are watching Washington right now and at least one side of politics and a large share of it is threatening to default. And they're trying to convince Democrats that they would do it so they have more leverage. They're accidentally convincing investors. As a result, we're probably all paying slightly higher interest rates right now because they can anticipate what's already happening. Now if we actually go ahead and default, eh, there's probably a couple of days where we could put, you know, fix it within two days. Congress is very good at the 11 o'clock deal being, let's create a 48 hour fix, and then 48 hours later they fix it, and then everyone would just say, oh, phew, we got through the debt ceiling one more time, but do you worry about next time? So interest rates would be a little higher. This would cost the American people millions of dollars, maybe not billions of dollars, And we'd all move on. That's the pain part. Let me come back to the catastrophe. If if everyone's sitting around at 11 o'clock and the clock's ticking towards midnight, tick, 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 and then midnight hits and they default, financial markets will be open at that moment. And at that moment, you will know for sure and for certain the grown-ups aren't in the room. And you will have learned about a whole new level of congressional dysfunction. And so at that moment, bond yields will spike. Could that cause a financial crisis right there? And then it could. Could it take longer to play out? And so if they try and put Humpty Dumpty back together again, they can do it before everything breaks. They could. But the thing is, financial prices move move immediately and they move enormously. And that may cause some particular financial institution to be wildly exposed to a risk it hadn't foreseen. And then everyone on Wall Street looks around and says, hey, are you really exposed to that uh, default thing? Because that's really bad news if you are. And then you realize, I don't know whether you're exposed. And then I can't do business with you. And you can't do business with me because you don't know. And this is kind of the story of how financial crises start. And so that could happen by, you know, 1 a.m. that night.
0: Can I give a crazy thought? Please. If that were to happen with all the pain that would accompany it, do you think that might provide the political impetus for Congress to get rid of the debt ceiling altogether?
1: (laughs) Um. Do you mean sort of like when the Republicans failed to elect McCarthy on the fifth ballot? <laughs> could the sixth ballot have been the one that would get them to do it and and remove the tremendous political cost that one that they were imposing on themselves? Sure, it could happen. Yeah. Look, the only thing that stops crazies driving us off a cliff is when your listeners, the voters, say to Washington, "Look, this brinkmanship is fine, but I don't need the ideological win. I just need to wake up tomorrow and know that the banks still work." And so that's why I'm thrilled to talk to folks like you, because this is a public education campaign. As soon as people understand the madness of this, they don't want it. And as soon as they don't want it, the political pressure for it goes away.
0: Well, I'm glad you came on for precisely that reason, because it's all shrouded in complex uh, acronyms and economic talk, and not that many people take the time to explain it. And it goes over a lot of people's heads, including, including my head. My question at this moment is, we're recording this on the afternoon of January 25th. This won't be dropping into the feed until January 30th. What's the timeline for all this?
1: Oh, it's like six months. So what's happened is, if the federal government ran its finances the way it normally does, we would have hit the debt limit a few days ago. And then, if you remember, Secretary Yellen announced extraordinary measures. What extraordinary measures. measures means is, she promises to look down the back of the couch for spare change (laughs) and use that to meet the outstanding bills. And that as a strategy works for a while. And the treasury has gotten ridiculously good at this, which is why she can buy so
0: many months of breathing room. But can you buy a precise, I mean, this is coming from a layperson. How do you know when the deadline is then if Janet Yellen is engaging in extraordinary measures so that people know the moment of truth by which they have to come to an agreement? Do you follow? Yes, so the question, to
1: rephrase it,
0: how do I know
1: when there's no more nickels down the back of the couch? Yes,
0: and will you know in advance so you can come to a deal? Right. So
1: that's a question more of accounting than economics. But at this point, Treasury's been through this dance half a dozen times in the last decade. And what they're literally doing is a little bit more sophisticated than looking down the back of the couch. And so they know which funds they're rating. They know how much money is in those funds. There is, of course, tremendous uncertainty. They don't know on what day I'm going to send my tax check in, and they don't know on what day they're going to send you your tax refund. Um, So there is a minimal amount of uncertainty. But um, because it's so important that no one screws this up, Treasury tries to be as, as transparent as it can through this entire process. And hopefully both sides believe them when they say, this is the date, we absolutely mean it. And I think that's in everyone's best interest that they continue to play clean. And realize that all of this work that Treasury is doing, moving money around between accounts, people in, on Wall Street are replicating that work because they also have a great vested interest in trying to bet on these outcomes. And so we may, you and I may not be able to figure, out, figure this out to the minute, but I think the real political players have a very, very serious, very good, very reliable estimate of, of when midnight is.
0: We're running out of time, but I must ask you about this particular gambit that sounds crazy to people. Some people, I think in your profession, have suggested that all Janet Yellen has to do is mint a platinum coin whose value would be a trillion or more dollars, and that would solve the problem. How can that be, and what what should we make of that proposal?
1: Right, so Congress has said, it's up to us when you do or don't borrow, but it's previously said it's up to the treasury to mint coins. And, you know, that's not a big deal because coins aren't worth much. And so this idea was like, well, why don't we just mint a trillion dollars and use that to pay our debt? And so it's an end run. So how legal that is, you're more qualified to answer than I am. Would it solve the problem of getting this idiotic law out of the way and prevent Congress from arbitrarily on some weird date defaulting on the debt? Yes. Is that a good thing? Yes. Will it necessarily work? Janet has pointed to another problem, which is that, once she has a trillion dollars in her hand, she can't just go and hand it to someone in China and say, will you take this? She probably has to go and deposit it at the Fed. And the Fed might look at it and say, hey, wait a minute, I don't remember there being any trillion dollar coins, I'm not gonna accept it. So there's some risk around it, but it's a pretty good end run around an idiotic law. There's a slightly different way of doing this, which is the way we count our debt is, the government usually issues a bond the government says, I'm going to give you $100 in 10 years, and I'll also give you maybe $2 every year along the way. Those are called coupon payments. And then it says to people, how much would you like to buy that stream of payments? $2 every year and then $100 in the future. And someone might say, I'll buy it for $98. And it's less than $100 because you're lending money. And so you deserve to get more at the end than you put in. It turns out that that $100 and all the $2 payments along the way, as we count it towards the debt, only the $100 counts as debt. The $2 in interest that we pay each year does not. So the government could, another way of doing this is it could say, issue a bond that will be worth $1 in 10 years' time and pay $100 interest every year between now and then. And so that is a bond that would probably sell for $1,000, but it has a face value of one. So it would barely raise the debt while getting us a whole ton of money. It's a different legislative end run.
0: The fact that serious people can propose the coining of a trillion dollar platinum coin. What does that say about how manufactured a guardrail the debt limit is?
1: So it's a manufactured crisis and here's a way to manufacture out of it. (laughs) Right. And I think what I like about the changing the value of bonds version is it actually points out something really deep, which is figuring out what the value of our debt really is, is actually an incredibly complex matter. It's not clear Congress can, does or even knows what it's doing when it passes a debt limit. Like a debt limit tied to the face value of the debt makes no sense because there's also these interest payments called coupon payments along the way. Also, as we discussed before, limiting the debt makes no sense because what really matters is what you're spending it on. You're spending it on good stuff or bad stuff. The debt limit doesn't ask that question. The whole thing is sort of intellectually incoherent. And I think it makes that point really, really nicely. So I don't love the platinum coin. It sounds goofy. I'd do it, but I don't love it. But changing the face value of the you issue is a way of just pointing to the complete incoherence of Congress saying, spend this much, take in this much, but don't borrow any more. It's impossible. It's incoherent. You can't legislate that way. This is nonsense.
0: So speaking of debt limits, we've pretty much reached our time limit. I think we've broken the record, but this is important, consequential, and complicated. Any last word you have give to the listeners here who in good faith want the country to operate properly and fiscally responsibly
1: i don't want to tell anyone what to do but evaluate the claims that are being made carefully and think whether they make any sense and whether this is the right tool or the right moment to force the changes that you want
0: wise words professor justin wolfers thanks for being on the show a great pleasure For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters@cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashur. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam ozer Staten and Noah Azulay. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.